Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. On today's episode, we'll be continuing our Reading Revolution series discussion of Angela Davis's Abolition Democracy. If you haven't already listened to part one, please be sure to check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Just be sure to search for Left POC. And also get your free copy of the book on our Patreon page, And that's patreon.com slash leftpoc, where all of our content is 100% free. On that note, you can also make a donation there of a dollar or more to help us keep the project going. We always want to not only keep everything free, but also to be able to continue paying those involved a fair wage for their labor and to continue supporting other podcasts and projects that are doing important work. Also, follow us on social media. Again, that's leftpoc. And be sure to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps others find and enjoy the podcast. With all that said, let's get on with the show. Hi, everyone. It's Wendy Muse. I'm here with my co-host, Richard. What's up? Hello. Welcome. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Welcome to everyone. Uh, We today are going to continue with our discussion of the set of interviews with Angela Davis called uh, Abolition Democracy. This is part two. And we only have a few bits to discuss today, so it's going to be a little bit shorter than the last episode where we did like a more or less comprehensive breakdown of most of the things she discusses in the text. Um, Today we're going to talk about three specific things. Um, One, two things that are in the text itself, and then the other third item is sort of like, you know, outside of what she discusses, but that still links back to some of the themes that she brings up uh, throughout the book. The first of these is her sort of comparative analysis of um, approaches to enslavement and imprisonment by both Douglas and Du Bois, so Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois, and sort of the the debate that that they were having in real time and the ways that her own sort of political upbringing has made her reflect on their um, political and ideological interventions. Um, And then also we're going to talk about her discussion of the misuse of identity politics. It's worth remembering that this is during the the Bush administration that she's, or she's reflecting on the Bush administration. Um, And so it's, there was a lot of uh, misuse of identity politics during that rainbow coalition of terror of like international terror, basically run by that administration. Um, And then finally, we're going to talk about some criticisms and maybe some, you know, have sort of a critical view of, where Angela Davis is now um, politically and sort of what that means. Of course, you know, respectfully, because <laughs> we love we love Angela around here. Um, but we do this with all of our Reading Revolution uh, episodes where we definitely kind of not only discuss what's going on in the text, but also what's happening with the author, him or herself, um, or their self and, and where they are now um, or were after they wrote what they did. So anyway, um, yeah, let's get started actually with the Douglas Du Bois breakdown that she discusses or debate, I should say, not break down there. They were okay. They didn't like fight it out with fisticuffs or anything. Um, but yeah, what were your thoughts on that, Richard? And then I'll add in, you know, some some bits here and there. 
I think it's kind of interesting as somebody who is, you know, learning this stuff and re beginning there. Like, I guess I've been at this for a couple years now, or at least a year, but, uh, as somebody still kind of getting a, a new awareness to a lot of this stuff, I hadn't really been too familiar with this juxtaposition and other than some passing reading of Angela before and the text itself, uh, from Angela doesn't do so much, but the introduction mentions that based on prior writings and prior discussions that uh, this highlight of the difference in that she sees between uh, Du Bois and Douglas in the future of black liberation is very critical to kind of uh, the future writings that she would have and go on to uh, discuss about prison abolition. And so uh, one of the things that kind of stuck out to me from uh, the introduction portion of it was uh, that essentially I saw it as Douglas representing a more uh, kind of uh, joining the democratic apparatuses as they were and finding liberation through the law, whereas uh, Du Bois took a position that was uh, much more critical of what essentially both he and Davis saw as a replacement for slavery, which was a, a prison and carcerality and uh, the forced labor that that came out of that. And so that was kind of the the main takeaway that I got. And then it goes, we'll continue, but I'll let you get in there, Wendy. Yeah. Um, so she actually, when she was imprisoned herself, Davis wrote about this um, sort of debate between the two men. And so we should definitely revisit that at some point, perhaps in a Reading Revolution episode um, to discuss that. Um, but I think it's it's fascinating because it brought it brings up a lot of debates, like you said, that sort of parallel contemporary ones. And so you still have a lot of people who are like against what's happening in prisons or who are against, you know, like police violence and particularly racialized police violence towards um, black men and women. But I think that there is a disconnect sometimes. And I've seen a lot of people make this point. There's a disconnect between that versus actual abolition of prisons and what that means. And so many in many ways, the debate between Du Bois, who was being more critical and analytical about what was going on post-slavery, right? Like post-enslavement, what was happening to Black people, and particularly at this point, Black men, um, in terms of being imprisoned and wrapped up uh, by the state, caught up by the state, basically the state apparatus um, that was just kind of replacing what slave enslavement had done, right? Um, but then also, you know, I think, so I've, having read both Douglas and Du Bois, and like, I appreciate both men for what they had to say in their time, and I think... It's fascinating, but one point she also makes that I think is critical for us to think about is um, W.E.B. Du Bois's internationalism kind of took Douglas to a second place, you know, a different place. So Douglas was primarily focused on like his own life and the life of enslaved peoples um, in America and the United States of America, I should say. That was his focus as an abolitionist um, and also the focus of his abolitionist peers. Whereas I think with Du Bois, he was looking very critically at what was going on in the United States and then connecting it to what was happening around the world um, in terms of marginalized people and oppressed peoples in the U.S. versus the way that the U.S. dealt with the rest of the world. Um, and particularly um, just our sort of like connection or what he he argued was a need to connect back with our African roots and, you know, just like what's going on in general in Africa on a political front. Um, and, you know, that's like when he became a communist and all these things and, and went to live in Ghana, et cetera. So I think that there's kind of um, it's almost like Du Bois is less 
debating with Douglas as he is continuing a legacy of, of liberation. Right. I don't want to see it as, I don't want to characterize it as like a fight. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it is kind of like, he's picking up where he left, where Douglas left off and continuing it into a much broader field and like deeper um, discussion. One last thing I just wanted to add, I, I wondered, you know, when reading this and maybe Douglas touches on it in her larger essay on their, um, the two men's debate on this issue, but I don't know. I, sometimes I wonder if <laughs> Douglas was just like tired, you know what I mean? Like he himself was a slave. Mm-hmm. He was an abolitionist, you know, after he ended up in, you know, finding freedom for himself basically. And then I know that his his first wife had died. He remarried the woman he re, he married. So his first wife was black. Um, and I don't know what her involvement with abolitionism was, but I think she was also an abolitionist. But then the second woman he married um, was white. So I'm sure he got a lot of shit for that. Right. Like at that time, it's, you know, it was like completely different, much rougher, most likely to be married to be in an interracial marriage. Um, but then on top of that, she was also an abolitionist. But what's interesting to keep in mind about many white abolitionists at the time was that there was sort of um, they didn't all believe in equality of black people, right? So many of them believed in the end of enslavement and the practice of slavery, the institution of slavery, but they didn't necessarily want to share a house or a neighborhood or, you know, like a system of institutions with black people. Um, So I think it also is kind of like worth considering what his involvement with abolitionists meant for what he said as well. You know what I mean? Like, could that have possibly influenced some of his potential radicalism? Could that have like dampened his radicalism in some way um, for him to be less, um, I don't know, for him to not go as far as he could have gone, I guess I should say. Yeah, and uh, I think you raised some interesting points. I think the international perspective of Du Bois is definitely critical. And when I think back, I have read some of uh, Reconstruction and then from Du Bois and then Douglas's autobiography and from that reading and then uh, you know this reading and your commentary it makes me think it's like I do see that that kind of more personalized perspective from Douglas versus a more systemic analysis from Du Bois uh, particularly in, in the reconstruction piece and so like I could see I also see the building on and then some of uh, what you're talking about of kind of how I could see just being Douglas kind of being uh why it would make sense from a personal perspective for him to to adopt some of the views and have to hold some of the views that he does uh, uh, it, with or with consider consideration for where he found himself personally, the circles he found himself in, and so on and so forth. Like you mentioned, uh, marrying a white abolitionist and probably traveling in many white abolitionist circles, mm-hmm. it, it would naturally become uh, more amiable and acceptable within those circles to kind of uh, adopt those positions and they would also be prevalent and there'd be a lot of factors contributing towards i think uh, a desire to to adopt those types of positions or uh, advocate them and i think du bois also uh, is in a unique position uh, historically to kind of offer a more systemic analysis also seeing how some of these things had played out over time and from a perspective of still being immersed in in the society rather than kind of aloof from it in a in the kind of class way I think that Douglas eventually found himself in. If you consider where Douglas starts as, you know, property, 
of, of a white family to eventually being seen as notoriously now how most people uh, outside of black liberation probably see him as Lincoln's friend, you know, that's, <laughs> that, that's, that's a very large class jump. And I think that it would only be, it, it's reasonable to expect that there, that the analysis or the perspective would adjust over that time. Like the it's question like, is, was Douglas the Jay-Z of, no, I'm just kidding. Was he the Jay-Z of the abolition movement? Hmm, questions uh, for the week. I'm just kidding. No, no diss on Douglas. He was great, but. And probably a better rapper, but I'm not going to go there right now. <laughs> he had a much more difficult experience, which, yeah. which brings me though to the question of like, again, not to kind of pontificate and, and act like, you know, armchair psychiatrist or something with Douglas, but I also wonder if part of it has to do with the fact that like, he was literally a slave, right? And I think for him, if you're looking at it from a perspective of someone who was a slave and then saying, okay, now people are getting imprisoned, it's it's the same thing as like part of a system of slavery. He's gonna be like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> are you kidding me? Like, I was an actual slave. I was, these are people who are free and now they're getting caught up in the prison system. But, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they, like, I, part of me wonders if like he saw it as sort of not so much an extension of, enslavement but like a lesser degree a far lesser degree because it was i'm wondering like part of me wonders if he if he maybe made some arguments about choice or about criminality again these are things that we can discuss if and when hopefully we read Douglas or um, davis's piece later on about this because i'm sure she goes into this but it, you know right now just kind of educated guessing on it i wonder if he was just like my experience was so harrowing that I cannot compare it to anything else that happens to people when they are free. It's not quite the same thing because like their children, for example, won't be born into imprisonment, right? Whereas if you're a slave, your child is born into slavery Um, or like your entire family is part of it. I think in a way that's slightly different from, or he would argue, I'm assuming as a slave, is slightly different from the prison system, you know? As bad as it is, I don't think he would downplay it, but I part I sort of wonder if that's it's part of it too. Like you can't come like slavery being so bad that it's not comparable to these other things. Sort of like when we have just really quickly, sort of like when when you hear some people talk about um, you know, migrant labor and abuses of migrant laborers, and then they compare it to slavery. And sometimes people get upset because they're like, ultimately though, even though they're getting paid very little, they're still getting paid. And then even they're like, it's not generational and it's abusive and people acknowledge that, but it's not the same thing as like permanent generational chattel slavery. And so sometimes people don't like the comparison or the use of the word slavery to talk about these things. So I wonder if it's sort of that too, like if if he's, if he would have made some sort of argument based on personal experience and saying it's not like not the same thing. I, it, there, it's fair to say, in my opinion, based off of like what we do know uh, historically about Douglas, that he would have been susceptible to arguments of meritocracy, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, and uh, I guess it's worth noting uh, that we should mention for one reason or another that uh, among slaves, Douglas also still had it pretty good oh, comparatively yeah. to other slaves of the time. And he admits like, that. He says yeah, that, literally. He's aware. <laughs> Yeah. And so like, I just I felt like that and we should mention that. But then uh, okay. I think one of the aspects that you bring up that I think is kind of critical is how I think that there was a large portion of abolitionists whose main kind of uh, uh, quarrel with the with slavery wasn't so much kind of the horrificness of slavery in and of itself, but the concept that these people had done nothing to deserve it, mm-hmm. that 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 these innocent people were being enslaved for no other reason 
than the color of their skin, their generational heritage. And like they needed a system that provided them an explanation for why these people were in these circumstances. And and so like it wasn't so much about abolishing the circumstances, abolishing the the forced labor or the the really horrific nature of the kind of brutality brutality of punishment, but making sure it was being uh, dealt to the people that deserved it and that right. only the people that deserved it were getting it. And it's like, yes, these people are all savages, but some of them are the kind of savages that we can teach to, you know, live, you know, cope peacefully in our houses and serve us dinner. And some of them are the type that can only be outside and need to be, you know, whipped and chained. Like, yeah. And that was kind of the, the concept behind the, the, the delineation and for some i think more whatever centrist abolitionists of the time that it wasn't so much about abolishing the horrific nature of, of slavery itself but just kind of giving it a, a righteous justification and so like beyond what i think they thought was failing at the time uh, you know, biblical or based strictly on a kind of uh, hierarchical white supremacy without consideration for the circumstances which are colonized and colonizer book tells us you know it's like hey there's this obvious conflict in front of them in which they're dependent on these people that they think are subservient or less quality than it's kind of this inherent contradiction of colonialism and the early u.s and so i think this what we see in the criminalization and carcerality mentality in this transition between slavery and uh, prison the prison system is a manifestation of that in in many ways oh for sure and i think this this sort of moralization or moral argument has a lot of flaws precisely because of that because it does you can't see the forest for the trees you know like you can't see the system you can see people as individuals who are good or bad um, or the way individuals are treated as being good or bad um, but not necessarily the system as a whole and i think like this reminds me not only of what Davis says with regard to the way we think about imprisoned people, right? We think about them all as like, well, they committed a crime, so maybe, you know. And I, it reminds me so much, so much right now of the debates that, not de not debates, but I should say rhetoric, like discussions of immigration and um, and versus prison, right? And so you see, again, and I say this as someone who supports both movements, so just to make that clear, because I know there's some people who are like, don't give a shit about immigrants and like only care about Black people in America and fill in the blank, right? I am not part of that camp. Um, I think both abuses towards immigrants and imprisoned people in this country are bad and should be discussed. But I will say that there is sometimes, I think, in the rhetoric, a major flaw, because what I hear often is there's a creation of a kind of perfect immigrant, right? The And even mm -hmm. like, <laughs> it's funny because I even hear immigrants get like, immigrants in the US discuss that this idea is hyper flawed and they wish it would go away. But this idea of sort of like the the model citizen or like the model potential, potential citizen, uh, the model immigrant, sort of like the model minority myth as well, but with, with all immigrants. So like this idea that they're all innocent and they're all, you know, hardworking and fleeing from these, fleeing for their lives and this abusive situation and that they deserve to be here because they haven't done anything wrong. And I know that that rhetoric is, is done, it's, you know, kind of constructed that way primarily in opposition to the language of people like Trump and conservatives who say all immigrants are criminals. And the second they step foot in our country, they've engaged in a criminal act, which again is like ridiculous. Right. Um, but I think that this, 
this kind of rhetoric is what is put in contrast to the rhetoric that Davis discusses is problematic with regard to how we think of people who are imprisoned, right? Because we say, oh, they all committed a crime, therefore they are not innocent, therefore they do not deserve the same kind of recognition of their humanity and whatever happens to them. So like we can look at uh, internment camp basically of immigrants on the border and say, oh my God, look at how they're treating those children. It's atrocious. Look at how they're treating these adults. They're putting people in cages. They're not feeding and clothing them and whatever. But sometimes, not always, but sometimes the same people who can notice the failure to recognize the humanity of immigrants at the same time will ignore the humanity of imprisoned people precisely because the majority of them in terms of, or not the majority, but the, the, um, the proportion of them that's being discussed is black people and black people, as Angela argues, is sort of, it's like the blackness part is already the sin. So you're, you're seen as criminal, no matter what, you know what I mean? Like, even if it's, it requires less of an interrogation of the system that turned you into a criminal that criminalized your very existence. That's not what they criticize. They criticize the person. Again, it's round, down to the individual, right? And so they don't pick apart the system that turns random Black people walking down the street into criminals just for existing. They don't criticize that. They criticize the person who gets imprisoned. And so I think that that, that like contrast is really it feels very like real right now because we're seeing it in real time. You know, like it's like a contemporary issue to this day, I think, that can be sort of what she talks about, but the debate between Du Bois and Douglas can kind of be grafted on to our discussion and the, the, the ways we discuss immigrants versus imprisoned people, despite the fact that conditions in, in U.S. jails are some of the most like, I don't even know. I don't there's not an adjective for it. That's how bad it is, you know. Yeah, it's like it what I pulled out of that, especially what it makes me think about is how headlines uh, regarding, you know, various incidents, how they change depending on the race of the perpetrator and also sometimes the, the social position, but that, you know, uh, when it's a white victim, their innocence is always presumed. So that like, it might get mentioned, but like when it's a white perpetrator, it's about, you know, what are the, like the headline will contain things that allude to the circumstances that led to it. Whereas with black perpetrators, it's often something about a criminal record, you know. And like, even oh, black victims, were, right? Yeah, and, and black victims as well. Yeah, as yeah. we saw, like, we've seen, and so it, it's. I think the the criminalization of being black and existing, and then we see it constantly, uh, depending on you know where, like where you're following on Twitter, but it's hard to avoid anymore, as you know, black people constantly being uh, arrested, harassed, uh, beaten, or killed for simply existing you know whether it's being on the phone in their own backyard or you know uh, walking too quickly into an entrance of a building that they're not supposed to be in uh, because they're black <laughs> like even though they they may live there or whatever and uh, I, I think that that kind of criminalization and then that justification gives people uh, like you said it allows them to avoid analyzing the systemic uh, aspects because uh, they're able to focus in on, well, what was it that made this person in this situation uh, end up it, with this kind of outcome versus why is this, what, what are the systemic issues leading to these kinds of things rather than individual actions or perceptions that are leading to those things. And it, it becomes very frustrating, I think, for a lot of folks uh, just because I feel like a lot of these things, 
for people that are paying attention, it's like we notice it's like, well, what are we going to do about it? You know, mm -hmm. what are we what are we going to change? How are we going to change it? And uh, I think what in the writing, what we see from uh, Davis talking about Du Bois is like Douglas talked about kind of a negative uh, liberation, which was the abolition of slavery. But Du Bois takes us towards uh, a more comprehensive and positive uh, liberation that includes building new structures of liberation that address the both historic and current uh, chasm between uh, these classes of society uh, with black people existing as second class citizens, especially uh, during that time when there was supposed to be this reconstruction. There's Davis mentions that the 40 acres and a mule isn't just a rumor that it, it was according to a, a military order. And essentially what basically happened uh, is the United States just didn't back it up. And what we end up seeing is uh, in a few short years going from seeing black elected officials in local uh, municipalities and even some at the national level to them rapidly uh, being excluded from the political system through the carcerality uh, uh, and the massive the mass incarceration uh, of them and then also a lack of resources to put them in a place where they can exist in society rather than be dependent on the same people that they were allegedly liberated from right there's a real i mean his du bois's some of the, his earlier work um like souls of black folk he really has a very thorough breakdown of reconstruction and what happened how it failed we should maybe at some point read excerpts from those from his earlier works um about slavery and reconstruction and the aftermath because they're very salient um another thing i just wanted to add and then we can transition to something else because i know i'm still like going on about this but i think the other part that I forgot to mention earlier, where I think we see in particular the fault lines and the problems with these like bifurcated ideas of who is innocent, who's not, like who's acceptable and who's not, is um, when we talk about black immigrants. So one of the areas, like we're, we're, because I was talking about like sort of the difference between rhetoric around immigration and immigration rights versus imprisoned people and abolition of, of prisons and what that means, there is it's a very interesting problem or like conundrum for black immigrants, especially black immigrants who have darker skin. Um, because what you see is, for example, cities that will say things like, you know, we're a sanctuary city and blah, 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 blah. Like I remember, I remember this very distinctly, like when, when Trump was first elected, or at least when he started with all of his like anti-immigrant rhetoric, there was a big popping up of like, um, sanctuary cities. But at the same time, <laughs> these sanctuary cities were also pumping exorbitant amounts of money into their police forces. And some of them were saying, oh, the police are not going to work with ICE. You know, they're going to do their own thing and they're going to still try to protect these communities. It was like they were saying that the police would protect immigrant communities with little discussion or even acknowledgement of the fact that there are also black immigrants. <laughs> so mm -hmm. like, how can you have a discussion about sanctuary? Sanctuary for whom? I mean, which immigrants are we talking about if Black immigrants are being antagonized by both ICE and the police, right? And often, often too, like many Latino immigrants. I mean, of course, there are Black Latino immigrants as well, but I should say stereotypical images of Latinos in the sense of like a brown person. Um, they are also antagonized by both police and ICE. So it's a very strange, like, set of dichotomous images that people have in their, in at least the politicians try to portray, you know, in their minds about who, again, who is to be protected, trusted, who is innocent, who is worth 
again, this idea of worth, right? Worthiness to be in this country and who's going to contribute to the community and to the workforce, all this kind of language. It's very meritocratic and based on, again, like kind of myths about who the immigrant is and what immigration means to the United States. Whereas of course, there's never a, an in-depth discussion of like, because whenever people say things like the U S is a nation, America is a nation of immigrants. Okay. But what about like native Americans, <laughs> like indigenous people who were here or like slaves who were brought here, who definitely were not immigrants that also built very much built this country. And so it's kind of, I think, it's frustrating to see the way we still, and I think people, especially politicians, still speak in this manner that creates these very neatly separated categories that ignore overlap and that also ignore the fact that like they're putting one group into the positive category based again on like mythic ideas of what immigration is because for them, immigration is mainly a white thing. You know what I mean? Like, cause they think of themselves as like, we were the immigrants who made this country great or whatever. Um, but for them, they're only thinking about white immigrants and they're not thinking about what preceded that. Um, whereas I think at the same time, there's a demonization of and like a specific targeting of people that are that by the criminal, quote unquote, criminal justice system that they don't want. They don't want to touch on that subject, you know, um, and this it's like they're pitting the two groups against one another that I think is really dangerous instead of their recognizing how there's overlap. And I wonder part of me wonders like how, how this rhetoric is going to play out in the future, because I know in the case of both the U S and many Latin American countries, immigrants that were coming over from Europe and in many times encouraged and financially aided by the governments that were in power at the time from Europe. Um, I want, part of me wonders if like, there's going to be the same kind of language of, you know, these slaves like ex because at the time it was like former slaves were portrayed as lazy, incompetent, that they didn't want to work, even though they were facing extreme discrimination in the job market, despite being rather skilled, um, usually more, more so than some of the white immigrants coming over. Um, but then there's this contrast with them versus the quote unquote hardworking white immigrant who wants to have a job, who wants to do better for his family, who wants to make money and make this country what it is. Um, you know, I wonder if we're kind of witnessing a real time reiteration of that kind of rhetoric and what it's going to mean for solidarity movements that we need to be forging between these multiple groups, as opposed to seeing them as separate, no non overlapping entities, you know. Anyway. The, <laughs> no, I think that those are all great points that you raise. And then even the kind of mythical good immigrant, like, uh, you know, even Trump will say, oh, you know, we want want the skilled ones. It's like, well, the mm -hmm. reality is that once you get to the, like, if you actually get into the immigration debate, you'll find that HB2s, which technically are usually for folks in the technical field, you'll find a lot of tech liberals that are like, oh, we need less of those and not that these people on those visas need rights and mm -hmm. wages is that they'll argue that we just need less of them driving down our wages. And so I think you'll see this kind of, and rather than criminalize the corporations that are doing it, they'd rather just, uh, you know, take away the legal avenues that these workers have to get these jobs that they, that they may say they're not performing as well as their American counterparts, but uh, the business. And then they'll are, become the bad immigrants, by the way. The right. Second, exactly. You know, like, <laughs> And they become quote unquote bad immigrants. So. And it's nonsensical as well as there's a Jessica's law, which came around, which also had 
the, essentially the solution to immigrants that were uh, coming across the border was to lock them in prisons so that they stayed in this country and we paid upwards of $50,000 a year to maintain them, but in deplorable conditions that are basically inhumane and probably don't even meet Geneva Convention expectations at this point. And so like the the whole our whole kind of conceptualization and we saw also in the Democratic debate with, well, is it still going to be a crime or, you know, is it a civil penalty and is a civil penalty still a crime? What does that mean? Like, you know, it's like we this necessity to criminalize uh, the other and as well as then to kind of uh, disappear communities that don't fit the, into the narratives that, that they want or that overlap their identities overlap into several categories and are essentially erased in the the generic or the kind of lumping together of these issues. And so I, I think those are all great points uh, to raise. Yeah. Speaking of points, I'm going to switch it over now back to Ms. Davis. Um, but it's still fitting because we're now going to switch over and talk about identity politics, which I think is applicable here because it also, again, plays into this idea of like whose who's voice is valid to be, you know, loud enough to speak for certain groups and why. Um, and also, what does it mean to kind of have um, like tokenized members of said community be the ones doing the dirty work against their own community, right? And I think we definitely see that in the case of Trump's administration, but as Davis discusses, because she's talking about the Bush administration, um, there's a very long held precedent of this misuse of identity, unfortunately, in a way that's craven and that's harmful to the communities that it claims to be representative of. Um, so she brings up, this is around page 22, um, although she talks about it throughout, but she starts discussing this idea that basically, you know, Dr. King, before he died, realized that there was the civil rights movement didn't go far enough in terms of breaking down not just the idea of like yes black people need rights but also that there's a necessity for black people to be um to sort of recognize the limits of that power once we get it right and what that means um and she talks about the fact that you know the idea was for some people that if you just put enough black people in a certain position or if you put enough women in a certain position or if you put you know if you give people quote unquote access then things will be better, right? And she says, quote, the challenge of the 21st century is not to demand equal opportunity to participate in the machinery of oppression. Rather, it is to identify and dismantle those structures in which racism continues to be embedded. This is the only way the promise of freedom can be extended to the masses of people. And I think that's, this is like really important. It's again, it's not something new that we haven't talked about before, not only on this podcast podcast, but just in general. I think right now this discussion of um the misuse of identity politics is pretty like it's on everyone's lips in a lot of ways. Although I think sometimes in ways that instead of addressing the misuse, people un incorrectly assume that all identity politics are bad. And that's not what she's saying, and that's not what like people who really understand what identity politics means and its origins are saying. Um, but the issue is that it's this idea that like, as long as we have people who look like us in the seats of power, then it's fine. But the problem is that there's not a deep enough interrogation of what that power means and how it affects us and like other communities. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, I always, it, it's always Fred Hampton and the clip on edu the importance of education and movement and how 
essentially that if if we don't learn about what we're doing and why we're doing it, then essentially we end up with uh, what he he cries, or what he says is Negro imperialists. And so I think that uh, kind of leads us to where we're going to end up. But uh, to me, that's the encapsulation of it. And to know that it was expressed then and to know that we should have been continuing to build on it. And I think Davis does so here in, in this piece or in the, the, the pieces that are collected here. Uh, but that it uh, does not necessarily resonate with the enough or with everybody of the left. And I think that you also raised an interesting or uh, critical point as far as uh, kind of a delineation from, uh, uh, I want to say, you know, uh, a critical analysis of identity politics and its role in modern politics and essentially people that are just kind of dismissing it outright because of a co-option and a, a poisoning of it by uh, a neoliberal factions that have kind of uh, adopted some aspects of it in ways that I think are destructive. And then we see a kind of a counter uh, narrative that emerges among uh, leftists that are somewhat kind of, I don't know what the words I'm wanting to use here, but I guess narrow in their uh, understanding of the movement and liberation of oppressed peoples worldwide and kind of take a more Eurocentric perspective that based off of a lot of older texts of leftist movements don't really focus on the aspects of race and how race plays a role, particularly through a lens of, uh, you know, modern, the modern U S political environment. Uh, while Marx and Lenin had some very important and valuable things that we constantly reference, even in this particular uh, piece, it, ref it starts out with the Lenin's quote on prisons being, uh, you know, the the schools of revolutionaries. They also lacked a perspective that uh, can only be gained through experience, but is not. Uh, and I'll take a quote from the text here: "Is that particular individuals." are not inevitably linked to the structures of oppression implied by their racial backgrounds. So what Angela, I see is saying there, and that's, I have it on uh, roughly page 67 of my digital copy uh, after the question about Condoleezza Rice and Alberto Gonzalez and Colin Powell, but essentially the point being that your identity is not an immunization towards politics of oppression towards that identity. And I think that that is a critical observation that needs to be both interrogated and then integrated into anybody's view that wants to associate with themselves with the left is that identity gives you perspective, but it's not an immunization against oppressive politics towards that identity. And it's, I mean, it's frustrating because I do think so with going back quickly to Marx and Lenin, I mean, even their stuff even their stuff touches on, you know, some of Marx's stuff talks about um, slavery. Lenin, I know, has has discussed and been utilized quite frequently by um, revolutionaries of color around the world against colonialism. So it's not like, I mean, what's frustrating is that even those thinkers are sort of put into this category of like class reductionists and they're, they're not actually. Right, um, yeah. I'm not saying you're doing that, but I'm saying in general, I think some people assign them to that position when they too are also critical of the ways that like 
certain certain norms of classism kind of end up being replicated through these other forms um, or not just replicated, but like deepened, I guess, further, further deepened and problematized by these other vectors of difference. And um, it reminds me too, like, I, I'm not going to call him by name, but I see someone who's like an, an, an intellectual that I once very much admired, but I think has taken a very strange turn as of late, um, who's still writing in a way to deny that race plays a role in the way classism operates in this country. And I think it's a really dangerous track <laughs> to take because the reality is there's countless bits of evidence over and over research studies and, you know, just, I mean, it's, it's almost like at this point being a climate change denier or like you think the world is flat because honestly, if you look around and you look at the numbers and you look at the way classism operates in in the United States and in many, you know, multiracial um, countries or multi-ethnic countries, which is like all of them, but still you get what I'm saying. Like the way it kind of breaks down, there are going to be often women, people of color, people of certain religious minority groups, um, or even certain ethnicities and nationalities, they may experience and usually experience, um, you know, inequality in different ways or economic inequality and like more acute ways than than their peers who may be of the quote-unquote majority so it's i don't know it's a very strange uh form of denialism that i don't understand the point of other than to aid white supremacy <laughs> so. right and, and one thing that one way that i see that it manifests and that i find to be kind of a succinct way to kind of confront it and present the contradiction is that uh when you like if you ask what measurable improvements have been made to reduce the gap between black and white people in this country you find out uh, that when you look based uh, essentially the only improvements that you'll see measurable improvements that you can see represented in the statistics is representation mm -hmm. and exceptional and, representation too like these are exceptions to mm -hmm. the rule you know absolutely it's like an obama or a condoleezza rice as as davis points out Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, as, and we'll get more into it, it's very important to recognize why it is these exceptions are allowed or are integrated into the system and, and what they represent to the system. Mm -hmm. And and uh, I think that that becomes a critical role in also kind of our critique of Davis that we'll get to a bit later. Oh, sure. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm laughing just because I know what's coming. Um, but I, there's another part that I wanted to just touch on, but it's very much related to this discussion. Of, it's like an extension of the identity politics or misuse of identity politics discussion, um, where she talks about feminism and its failures, um, or at least mainstream bourgeois feminism, predominantly white feminism and its failures um, with regard to Abu Ghraib and all of that, um, the sort of shock and surprise that the women were also engaged in torture of people um, and that sort of the mask had fallen on this idea of supposed female unity or whatever, um, or the prospect of female unity. And I think that this is around in the forties, mid forties of the discussion where she talks about this. Um, but she, she mentions that, you know, what happens unfortunately is that now for all of us, we quote, we all have been offered an equal opportunity to perpetuate male dominance and racism. And as she further argues, you know, violence and things like that. I don't know if I would characterize them as solely male because um, she uses the term male in this way, but I think, I don't think she's using it in like a literal way. I think she's kind of just 
using like feminist rhetoric language to kind of frame it in that way. Um, but it reminds me like th this morning I was listening to an interview on, um, you know, like a morning talk show or whatever. And they were interviewing a woman and her husband who are like screenwriters or something. And they've created this new Netflix film about um, a rape victim and the police that investigate it. And one of the things that one of the authors mentioned was that, you know, if there were more women involved in police investigations, then they would most likely be more empathetic and more um, thorough and things like that. And it's like, and she's white. And I just saw my, I said to myself, like, how in this day and age where we literally, as she's saying this, there's a woman, a white woman on trial who shot a black man in his own house and then was just like, I was distracted and didn't know. And she thought, cause she thought he was intruding on her property and it was his property. Do you remember this case? She's like mm -hmm. on trial right now. And I just said to myself, like, and then there were so, there've been like multiple cases of female, predominantly white female police officers engaging in incredibly violent behavior towards people of color and particularly black people. And I'm just sitting here thinking to myself, like, how can you say that? Like how, it, I don't know. It felt very, it was jarring because it's like these two things are happening simultaneously. And we still have people who believe that just by virtue of po some police people being women or of color or whatever, that the system itself is going to be somehow made better and more fair and better for like, the general population and like, which, which people are you talking about them expressing empathy towards and like being thorough in the investigations of, because it sure as hell ain't us. Like even, even when you think about like the, the central park five and the prosecutor in that case was a woman and she was like pushing for their, for the death penalty for these boys, you know? So there's really just, I, I, I get frustrated with the fact that like people can't, some people, not everybody, but some people cannot see the dangers in these kinds of, um, this kind of shorthand that's supposed to be about equality and whatever, when in actuality just sort of reinforces the really negative norms that we've come become accustomed to. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, uh, I'm reminded of Ice Cube, you know, the black cop showing out for the white cop. So like, <laughs> I, I'm reminded just, you know, that a lot of observations that we make contemporarily or based on our circumstances are observations or recognitions that have existed in the past. And like one of the things that's disturbing is that then the people that are doing these haven't corrected or even improved their strategies in ways that would make it less observable or noticeable. It's really just a lot of the times the same thing over again. And we see it in a lot of the rhetoric around a lot of these struggles where essentially people are literally repeating the same racist tropes that were used, you know, 50, 60 years ago. And then again, a hundred, 150 years ago and oh, virtually verbatim, even sometimes not even mod or like updating them for the current English usage of the words. Right. And so it, it's, it's Can you give us uh, an example. Like, so people know exactly what you mean. Oh, I, just, uh, I mean, some of the ones that come to mind, like, uh, I mean, the one that's kind of that's probably reasonably fresh in people's minds is Joe Biden at the debate and essentially how black families are need to be taught how to raise their children, essentially. <laughs> yeah. And, and your like record the, player, Richard. Yeah. Like, and again, literally using the record player reference, not updating for, uh, you know, the current times, although with consideration, uh, vinyls did outsell CDs recently. So nice. I just wanted, 
just want to acknowledge that that happened. So, but uh, I think one of the things uh, about the identity aspect that is really important that she mentions in the text is uh, I'll quote it here is quote identity by itself has never been an adequate criteria criterion around which communities of struggle could be organized. Not even during those periods when we imagined identity as the most powerful engine of movements. She goes on to say, communities are always political projects, political projects that can never solely rely on identity. And uh, I think that's uh, her picking up and also, you know, building on what Wendy was saying about how the idea that these identities and unity around identity will provide will provide liberation is a mistaken notion. And we see it play out with, the, as Wendy mentions, the police officers and we can see it. Uh, as is mentioned in the text with the, the Condoleezza Rice's, the Colin Powell's, the Alberto Gonzalez and, and others. And that if, if you organize strictly around identity, you're going to be confronted with the, these types of issues. But when organizing around a political uh, kind of theory and center that, that that's avoidable, particularly when that political identity and center has a recognition of the value of all people in an international perspective, as well as one that's uh, aware of the unique positions that various identities uh, put people in within the struggle. And so I think that that's a critical component, particularly also in the, I, in the kind of feeling of uh, Du Bois and building a positive kind of replacement is these organizations that replace the kind of democracy that we know now run mostly by oligarchs is uh rec it recognizes the various identities and it also recognizes that the identities in themselves aren't organizational or aren't something that can be organized by themselves but that the po politics that come along with those identities so you know if it's a disabled people the rights and recognitions that come along with that or trans rights or whatever the issue may be that it has to be placed within a greater social uh, socialist struggle and uh, an internationalist uh, perspective that takes into consideration the struggles that we are all facing and that doesn't uniquely focus on identities to the detriment of the the class identities that that bind the political struggle Right. And not just like the class identities, but also the way that that's lived. Right. I mean, not again, it's not just because generally sometimes people argue that like class is not an identity. Right. Um, it's like a state of being in many ways. And I think that there mm. is, um, you know, we have to be careful as well, like to understand that it's not just about like, oh, I'm poor, but it's like, how is poor being lived? Right. Um, what does that mm -hmm. mean? It's, so it's not just like a an identity, like you check a box, I'm poor, I'm rich or whatever, but it's like your day to day life. Um, takes on a different shape by virtue of your economic status. Um, and oftentimes that economic status is linked to like your basic opportunities and, you know, like things that I think sometimes we don't think about because we tend to see class in the U.S. as a kind of temporary misfortune as opposed to something that can be generational and can be sustained by the systems that exist, you know. Yeah, I think it's important the the systemic analysis versus the individual analysis that you mm -hmm. highlight there. Like, uh, I think that's a very important point that I just want to clarify. But I agree with fully. No, no, no. I, I mean, I was, and I wasn't saying that to be like Richard, you're wrong. Um, but it was just like a, I, it's a thing that I picked up on because I think it's like I think even that framing, as innocent as it is, is one that sometimes we make a mistake of like it. It sort of lightens the load, if you will, right? Um, and I would argue too that even like 
even ethnic and racial identity too is something that is it's not just an identity in some ways you know what i mean like i think identity calling things an identity sometimes cheapens what they mean in the day-to-day um to a degree i mean that that that's not something that i've heard someone say i'm just thinking in general right like offhand right now mm-hmm. um what does it mean to live as a black person versus just like checking a box and identifying as a black person i think are two different things um and i think like class analysis um and historical analysis helps us better understand what what it means to say something like that you know which i think davis does really well um there was one more part i just wanted to add of hers and then we can switch over to talking about some criticism of hers uh, of davis that i think is pretty important um there is something on page 24 that again kind of relates back to this discussion that we're having about the misuse of identity politics but also i think ties in some of the stuff that you were bringing in just now about internationalism and the importance of like connecting to international communities and and solidarity um, and understanding why people are living in the conditions that they are and that it's not just like some fluke accident um, and that we have to kind of learn to make connections and recognize the world beyond ourselves. Um, She says on, on page 24, that quote, it's sort of at the end, but she says, it's true that in the U S among black people who are used to being the quote unquote super minority, we must let go of this claim. There is this prevalent idea that because Black people established the historical anti-racist agenda for the United States of America, they will always remain in it, its most passionate advocates. But Black people as a collective cannot live on the laurels of its historical past, which again will connect us to what we're about to discuss with, with regard to criticism of Davis. She continues, we've recently received harsh lessons about conservative possibilities in Black communities. Quote unquote, black cannot simply be considered an uncontestable synonym of progressive politics. So basically, and this is something that like um, Charisse Burden Selly said in our, like one of my earliest interviews for this podcast, um, go back and listen to it if you haven't. Um, but she talks about this fact that like, sometimes for some people, the idea of blackness in and of itself is radical. And that's not necessarily how this always plays out, right? We have to be careful not to essentialize as well. And I think that, you know, this is why sometimes phrases like listen to black women can frustrate me because it's very select, like which black women, (laughs) you know, like not all black women are, are radical and some black women perpetuate systems that harm other black women. Um, So I think we have to be really careful with our understanding of what certain identities signify versus what those people like people within that identity have there's we're not a monolith is what i'm trying to say and i think that some people don't have our best intentions in mind and some people are engaging in harmful practices within the community and we have to recognize that as well when we kind of create this shorthand and and i think in large you know it's like it's twitter so whatever or like social media it's something you can put on a t-shirt or in a tweet but I think it's important for us to like understand that these these kinds of seemingly liberatory or like you know like positively reinforcing phrases can also be harmful because they ignore the difference within the community and they also ignore the fact that not all black people are right all the time, not all women are right all the time. Um, and some of those people should be criticized. And I think unfortunately that kind of language is weaponized and then used against those of us who are critical of say black, some black women who engage in these harmful practices. Um, I've seen it with my own eyes in very recent days um, where I think there is a disconnect as well with regard to what black people in America understand 
um, as oppression and blackness and sometimes our inability and I say this as a black person, so I'm not, you know, like, let me use identity politics, right? As a black person, as a black woman, I also recognize that some black women don't fully understand what it means to be in solidarity with black women throughout the diaspora. I think there's still a limitation on us because we live in the United States. And I think sometimes we still, I mean, I saw it today, like watching TV, there are people who work for the CIA who are black. So like it doesn't necessarily mean that just by virtue of being black or just by virtue of being female, that there's some sort of automatic registration of like black solidarity in its fullest extent. I don't know. I, I don't think that we should be so reliant on these things. And we have to be more critical when we see people failing at it, to be honest. Like if we're going to say things like listen to black women, we also have to be critical of black women when they fail at being real in, in full solidarity with other black women um, because let's say they're of a different class or of a different nationality or whatever. Um, we have to be willing to point that out and hold each other accountable as well. And about accountability, let's switch over to uh, Miss Davis herself. <laughs> Which, uh... Yeah. Uh, before we go in that, I just wanted yeah. to mention that one of the key kind of takeaways that I pulled away from uh, this text and our readings up to this point in general and just experiences that one thing that we have to recognize is that liberation is going to be criminalized. Like mm -hmm. the, those two things, getting liberated and being free is going to be criminalized by a system that is dependent on that not happening. So we, the, like, I think that's part of the failing of, of Douglas and the importance of Du Bois and then of, of Davis and that the recognition that this criminal, this criminalization, the carcerality and this punitive mentality has on the future of liberation in that it liberation is going to run up against those struggles and it's going to be imprisoned. It's going to be shackled. It's going to be, forced to labor in the interest of white supremacy. Those are things that we can expect and they shouldn't be viewed as, I guess, uh, reasons not to pursue liberation or that, that a particular path towards liberation is, is not righteous because it's criminal. And it's like, well, all, all paths that actually lead to liberal, uh, to, to liberation will be criminalized if they aren't already. And so, that that's just a reality that we're going to have to deal with. And so we're going to have to integrate that and incorporate that into any plans towards both organization, building uh, struggles and movements together and so on and so forth. And the risks that are involved as well. Right. Which um, I think also kind of plays into the Davis's history and experience. And uh, I'll let you give us a bit, bit of an intro. Oh no, I was, I agree. I mean, it absolutely does. Um, so sadly, I mean, there's always this turn, right? At the end of Reading Revolution, we're like, well, you know, all that good stuff we said about the author, let's take a pause on that. Um, there's always <laughs> this kind of like <laughs> weird side, not weird, but just like, again, people are fallible, right? Like people make mistakes, people are flawed, they're not perfect. This is why, you know, people always say like, don't like the, even, even the people you love and like your heroes are not perfect. So like, don't, hook your horse to them and expect them to be, you know, always be the person you imagined in your head. Um, there's a better, quicker phrase about this that I'm forgetting right now, but um, yeah, but I just think that there's, there's, 
I think it's like you, even your faves are problematic, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I think in this, in this case, we have a case of like our fave, Angela Davis, being problematic. Um, so there is an article written in Black Agenda Report, which is a left-leaning Black uh, site on the internet. Um, and it's written by Margot or Margaret Kimberly. She's an editor there uh, at BAR. And she wrote an article called uh, Ignoring Angela Davis, which is like, well, their titles that <laughs> Black Agenda Report are always very like out there. But I think this particular article um, is important. It raises some important points about um, Angela Davis's sort of foray into electoral politics and what that means. And I don't mean her explicit like run because she ran for the Communist Party in the 80s. Um, but in this case, the way that she talks about electoral politics in the U.S. and Margot Kimberly's criticism thereof, which I think is fairly valid. Um, so at some point, I guess during the 2016 election, when Hillary Clinton um, and Donald Trump were running against one another, Davis, I'm assuming at this was well after the um, well after the primaries and all of that. But she said, I'm not so narcissistic to say that I wouldn't vote for her, meaning Hillary Clinton in this case, I guess, when she was asked um, about her feelings on the election. And I recall this. I don't I think she said it on Democracy Now or something like that. Um, But she Margot Kimberly also in this article and in several other articles as well, there's more than just one at BAR that's critical of Davis. Um, But she talks about the fact that she that Davis endorsed Obama in both 2008 and 2012. Um, And she says, Margaret Kimberly says, quote, she not only supported him again, again in 2012, but claimed that he was part of the, quote, black radical tradition. The lie is so grotesque that it is difficult to know if she was really thinking when she she said those words. Nor was this her first foolish remark uttered on behalf of Obama. And so then she says that um, Davis said in 2010 that, quote, Obama won despite the power of money. And so I think that that, you know, these are valid criticisms of her, especially considering her radical past and all of her radical writings and things like that. It seems a bit uncharacteristic of her that she would be in such support of Obama, especially considering her criticism of identity politics or the way that they're misused and like um, her failure, it seems to recognize the problems with Obama, especially on foreign policy, but even some of his rhetoric on the domestic front towards other black people that was incredibly, um, you know, negative. So yeah, I mean, what are your thoughts on this? I I feel like I'm I'm on Kimberly's side, Margot Kimberly's side here. Um, But what are your thoughts about this article and maybe some of the criticism of of her, her connection to electoral or her, her opinions of electoral politics here? I guess before I do that, I just want to say that, you know, Davis is like history and work is like i have i i barely have any room or reason to criticize or anything other than from a theoretical perspective from as you know backing in the sense of being critically analyzing what i'm taking in from her uh her work and her efforts have been you know basically unparalleled by anything i've done or probably ever will do and so i don't want to take away anything from a radical struggle the fbi never locked me up in a prison cell and i didn't have to <laughs> think about what that was like or what it what what would happen the next time the fbi wanted to talk to me or if they were going to talk i don't have to think about any of that stuff like in the ways that she does so right. I, you're not I, canceling I, andrew davis is what yeah, you're saying <laughs> that's not what i'm doing but at the same time i like wow like uh, yeah. the juxtaposition of what she says about obama and 
reading this, it's like, or, like it feels like either a large amount of money or a threat had to change hands in order to have this kind of uh, difference in opinion. And considering this text isn't that old, you know, it oh. references Abu Ghraib and the Bush administration. So it, it was, it, this isn't, you know, oh, this is back in her radical days kind of thing. It's like, no, this was... It was in 2005, I believe. Yeah. It just preceded when Obama really uh, was was seriously looking like he was going to be the president uh, of the United States or had a chance anyway. And so the kind of the rapid change is what is really jarring to me that really stuck out is that it, what she says about Obama and how she treats the elections with Obama and then going on to Clinton is in such radical, uh, you know, incongruity with what she writes here. And the way she talks about Obama also seems less sincere and is less thoroughly kind of backed up and rooted in uh, kind of her politics and more in an observation of contemporary times and very kind of localized around the very specific circumstances of uh, the Democratic nominee versus the Republican nominee, which prior to this time, she mentions voted green or whatever and so on and so forth that you she, she Obama was the first time that she voted for either major party candidate is what she says in the text. And so like the, or in the, in the article. And so like, it, it's very interesting to me and very jarring, like I said, to see the kind of difference there. And I think one of the aspects that I think was kind of key was this kind of idea that, I think a lot of black people had at the time, which was weighing, you know, that Obama might not be representative of the politics that I want, but represented the identity argument and made right. something real that didn't exist before, and which was the idea that the United States could elect a black president. Mm -hmm. But she missed the part about, well, what politics did he have to have in order to do that? And we find that it was a reinforcement of white supremacy and the you know, the co-option of that identity, which rises to that position. And uh, Davis is in a position and has the capabilities to make that critique. And, and she didn't at the time when it was probably most needed. And that is disheartening. And so I, well, I think we're going to talk about the critique uh, of Davis itself. I think we should also kind of talk about what it means to the movement in general uh, to be a radical that, you know, lives past uh the times when radicals typically uh, exist you know past their 40s or whatever is like what does that mean to your politics yeah i mean i it's interesting because like in her text actually in the text that we read she says that like black people can't rest on the laurels of the civil rights movement and we can't like be so focused on the sort of figures of the past that we ignore what's happening in the present and I think that can also be applied to Davis or just radical thinkers in general, because at some point it's like, is there an expiration date, you know, like to their I mean, radicalism? If we look at like between the, the folks is like, we got her and then we got Bobby Rush and we got yeah. uh, Conyers and we got uh, uh, Elijah Cummings. It's like between them, she's the most righteous and the, the most true to her radical politics, yeah. clearly. Like, so but like it does seem that there's a trend from the living members of the civil rights movements that weren't incarcerated or or killed or completely marginalized off the political scene that the there's a demarcate demarcated or a demonstrated 
uh, the, yeah, of, of their radical beliefs. Yeah, they, and maybe like, it's survived or whatever that the kind of. I mean, I hate to say this, but like maybe it's because they weren't so they were physically threatened, but they did they survived it, and so mm-hmm. maybe that taught them their lesson of gotta appeal to the. I don't know. I mean, I, I what I'm saying is kind of scary because I'm like, is it that they were just like scared out of being radical? Um, yeah. Another um, aspect of it is that uh, the polling showed, you know, Obama had something like 95 percent uh, approval among black people. So it was hard to be black and oppose Obama during the height it. of 2008. And specific, but yeah, and some people did it. And uh, as a radical, it would seem to to be most fitting. But again, perhaps some of the, the lived experience of being, you know, on on tour, speaking at colleges is a little different than being deeply immersed into the radical black movement on the ground and the, the kind of confrontations between uh, the forces of white supremacy and the, the people on the streets rather than kind of more in the academic uh, atmosphere. I don't right. know, perhaps that plays a role. Maybe. But, you know, I think the big difference for me is that, like, I think supporting Obama in 2008 is one thing, but then mm-hmm. supporting him again in 2012, once you had a full record of what was going on is not good. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's when it's kind of like, okay, like, you know what he's said and done at, by that point, you had four years to kind of think about it and recognize for it for what it is. And I mean, and I'm saying this is someone I voted for him in 2012. I was not as radical in 2012 either, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But I think for someone like her, you know, if I had read her text, if I had read Abolition Democracy in 2012 or 2008 and then looked at Obama and some of the things he did while in office, I would be like, wait, is how is he different from like uh, on certain policies? How is he different from a Colin Powell or a Condoleezza Rice? How is he not fulfilling kind of like the, the things that she talks about in this text? I don't know. Um, and I also, you know, I remember during the 2016 election, you know, she kind of, she was, she was on democracy now. And she was asked, you know, about uh, whether or not she supported Bernie or Hillary. And she said she didn't want to get involved and she didn't, you know, she didn't want to like, she doesn't, she was like, I don't endorse candidates really. Um, And then, Mm -hmm. uh, then during the election, you know, she, or during the, once it got to the general, you know, she said what she said, which we already mentioned, but then I remember she also spoke at the women's March. So right after Trump was elected, she spoke there alongside lots of, bourgeois neoliberal type feminists. Um, so it was kind of weird. And I think that she, I don't know, maybe this is where she's most comfortable right now. And I think she might be playing in some ways kind of like an inside outside game. So maybe she's on the inside trying to use her position of power, whatever, you know, however you want to um, interpret that, but her access in a way to try to radicalize people. Um, but at the same time, I don't know how useful that is because I also recognize that like people see Angela Davis as a symbol more than they actually take her for her word in many cases. So like I'll see people with Angela Davis t-shirts and Angela Davis as their backdrop on social media, but then they'll be spewing stuff that's like totally centrist, capitalist driven, you know, whatever. I don't know how deeply they've read or even understand what she stood for at one point. And part of me wonders if her own, involvement in some of these spaces helps aid that process of de-radicalization of her own message. Oh, that's, uh, I hadn't really thought about that, but that is actually a, a good point about how essentially, I mean, I know if I were 
a more centrist liberal leaning person and then i had angela davis saying something to that effect to be like okay well if this radical can can bring herself to you know vote for this person then i guess it can't be that bad for me but with context of the last you know essentially i guess 12 years of her politics give or take it's uh it it doesn't like her last 12 years of politics and outside of specifically her abolition uh stuff like for abolishing prisons outside of that it's been it doesn't match up with her radical past you know when when she's strictly talking about abolishing prisons outside of you know presidential politics and so forth then i think it's still like a lot of her rhetoric still matches in her message matches her historical kind of positions but when it comes to the presidential politics they simply just don't match up you i I don't find I like having looked through both what she said in justification of it and just general. I found a root article that kind of was uh, more forgiving of her than the Black Agenda Report article. <laughs> and even reading reading through all of that, I'm not seeing any sort of real rationalization or justification based in any sort of real theory or based in any you know uh, radical tradition or anything like that. It's essentially just acquiescing to the two party system and kind of trying to make it not feel as bad <laughs> that, that, that's what i see and it's unfortunate and i can't uh, you know i can't be inside of her head and understand exactly why it's there and like you said there's an inside outside thing and one of the things that came to my mind when i was trying to kind of you know put put all this in my like trying to synthesize and integrate this into my understanding you know both with davis and then this prompted me to look more into you know like bobby rush and it's like he came out and endorsed Kamala Harris, and it's just like, yeah. wait, like what? Like how? How does a Bobby Rush? What? What happens in life that leads to the? And then you know, I look back uh, to uh, to Chicago, and then to also like his history, and find out, oh, okay, well, this is kind of what happened, and where it happened, he he became a part of the white power structure and saw significant professional uh, improvements as a result, and then you see, you know, the. Bill Clinton and the crime bill and how that's justified through the end of, and you see how, Oh, okay. I see how after the radical movements of the sixties and into the seventies, there was this co-option and uh, deletion, you know, it's like, obviously uh, the most radical, a lot of the most radical people were killed off or imprisoned and the next tier were integrated into the system and bought off. And another group was marginalized and just cast off the political scene as much as could be possible. And so, uh, I, I, what it seems to me is that essentially if you're a black radical from the 60s that's managed to maintain a public profile, it's come at a cost of sacrificing some of your more radical beliefs. And it was like, and, and whether that's just a rhetorical thing or it's a sincere thing that, that exists deep in the beliefs, I, I can't speak to, but that is a trend that I see when I look at a lot of the black radicals that have maintained a prolific public profile. Mm-hmm. And it's not just specific to black radicals in the US. I mean, I can think of so many examples just like off the top of my head right now, of like what happened in post-colonial African countries, you know, like after the liberation movement, so many leaders were killed either during the, the decolonization process or shortly after. And then the people who took over were basically like neoliberal, you know, uh, lapdogs to, to Europe and the US. And were used, you know, and, and in some ways, some of the ones who survived, who were part of these movements, used much like Black radicals in the U.S., used the specter of their history as radicals to then give them legitimacy among the communities and among voters. But in actuality, they were, you know, placating 
um, these sources of power. And I, I it's frustrating because I, I agree with you on like on Bobby Rush. He's even said some he has a history of saying like anti-communist stuff. Um, even Davis said some stuff on Russiagate. And then I remember as well, um, there's another black woman who was in the Panthers. I can't remember her name right now, but she is an ardent Harris supporter. And it, it's just like, am I what? <laughs> you know, like it's always really jarring because you're not expecting it. You want a, a kernel of the person that person used to be to be there still and sometimes it's just not and I think sometimes it's it's the image it's like you know okay I used to be a Black Panther I used to do this and that and that's cool and sometimes I say things that sound inspiring or radical or whatever but when it comes time for me to act I'm sitting on my hands you know or I'm endorsing somebody who I know I mean I, I almost am just like how can you look at her record and say those things unless someone is I don't know. I mean, because I don't want to say they're manipulated. I think it's just like, again, a sort of appeal to perhaps identity, like they want to see a black woman president or I don't know. But I, I can't understand how someone who if Kamala Harris were alive and practicing law, I should say, at the time that they were all radicals, all their asses would be in jail under her mm -hmm. prosecutorial record. So like or her prosecutorial tenure. So like, what is going on? Like what explains this disconnect? And I really don't know. Like I, I again, we can't, we can not in their heads. We don't know the full answer to this. There's just, you can just guess, but it is frustrating to watch to say the least. And I don't know, it's, it's very disappointing. It's, it's really saddening actually, because you want, I think there's a part of us that wants to hold on to that. So we can like have some sort of inspiration in the present, you know? But then if we pay, and I'm sorry, if we pay attention to what they're doing now, it almost like makes you lose hope because you're like, fuck, like, are all the radicals going to end up like that in 10 years or five years or 20 years from now? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's it, it's hard. It, it's it's a bit disheartening and it's hard to to get through this struggle and see the, the light at the end of the tunnel in a lot of ways. And so when some of the like most ardent and strident uh, fighters for liberation you see them kind of taking this this role on of essentially you know backing these kind of uh, either politicians or policies that are so counterproductive towards liberation it's just like one i just i don't never want that to be me uh, i'm reminded of a stickman or not a stickman but a a, a line from uh there's a which side are you on remix uh from with uh uh, dead prez on it and one of the lines is like essentially like talks about you know being fred hampton if like if i ever forget or it says basically please bl blow my brains out if i ever forget and it's like i feel that line and that like the how hampton died the kind of the the, the radical uh tradition and beliefs that he held uh when he died are the kind that i want to maintain until uh, i'm i'm gone i don't want to find myself like I already voted for Obama. I don't want to go back to that. Like, you don't I don't, yeah, I don't want I don't want that. It's like I, I liberation and understanding liberation is is a ongoing struggle for me. And the last thing I want is for all that work to to land me where I started. And so like when I see somebody like uh, Angela Davis uh, it, it end up there and I look to someone like Hampton, I just wonder, had he been alive today or MLK was also becoming more mm -hmm. radical uh, towards the end of his life, 
where would they have ended up? Would they would they be over here with me critiquing Angela Davis's more recent political positions, or would they be with Angela Davis are explaining to me how, as a young blood, I need to understand how this all works? You know, <laughs> and, and it's just it's I don't know. And so then it makes me think about where we, where are this generation of uh, leaders? Where are they now? And then where are they going to be 10, 20, 30 years from now, especially with recognition and consideration for the circumstances that we're going to be facing in that timeline with climate? And co-opting actually happens much faster now, thanks to, I think, just the, the reach of of power, to be honest. Like, I think institutions of power have much... Uh, like can reach people much faster now, you know, uh, you don't have to go through their CIA, CIA file or whatever. You can just like slide into their DMs. And I think that, you know, it's very obvious when we look some, to some of the um, people who were in Black Lives Matter, like, you know, Black Lives Matter leadership, who very quickly uh, went to the other side, if you will. You know, I don't want to, they're not like supporting police, but I think that they're supporting in some cases measures that uh, hurt the Black community or that they're making money, but they're not really helping people. Um, and I know for a fact that like some people who were involved in Black Lives Matter in some capacity or another of leadership support Kamala Harris. Um, you know, so that again, I, and that was just a couple years ago. I mean, it wasn't like Black Lives Matter was 20 years ago. It was a couple years, a few years ago, like when, when that, re- when that exploded, you know what I mean? When Ferguson and, and Baltimore and all these things kind of went out, came out on the world stage as sites of, of resistance, and a lot of those people fell off and are doing all sorts of stuff now that we wouldn't look at and praise. Yeah, and we'd be remiss to not mention that several protesters from the Ferguson movement are also found dead under mysterious right. circumstances. And so, mm-hmm. like, uh, a lot of people will attribute, you know, any sort of uh, association to that with the, the, the powers of repression. But the, the precedent is there, so I don't consider it paranoia, but a, a reasonable if not presumption, at least a reasonable uh, potential uh, explanation. Right. Well, I don't know. I guess all we can do is hope that we can keep moving in a progressive, more radical direction um, ourselves. And whatever whatever other people do is whatever they do. But I, I don't know. It's. I don't want to end this on such a negative note, but yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I I think again, uh, Hampton, you know, is like live for the people or struggle for people, live for people, die for the people, and it's like I feel like you know, someone like Angela Davis has to have died a little inside when she was saying some of those things. You know, she felt it. Like, I, mean, I, I, I believe it. We don't it. know that though. We don't even know that because I don't think we know that because she did the same thing with Clinton. I don't know if we know that. <laughs> I, I want to believe. <laughs> I think she's she's all right, but I don't know. I can't speak for her, so I don't know what's going on. But um, maybe, maybe we'll be so lucky to one day be able to ask her some of these questions. I don't think after what I've said that she's gonna <laughs> ask anything. But um, oh, maybe we'll, maybe we'll find her at a uh, campus where she it's a little harder to run away from. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, she does she does do so much public speaking that it could be a possibility that like if I ever go to one of her talks and I'm honored with the pros- the possibility of asking questions, I can ask her about that. Like, can you please explain, you know, some of I don't your know. 
during uh, during elections like how does that square with your how can we reconcile that with some of the things you said even during this speech today and then i'll get carted off by the police or something but <laughs> yeah i'd like to think that i have that revolutionary spirit but i would probably just be all starry-eyed and like well, ask for an autograph be, or I, something <laughs> i wouldn't be afraid to ask her but the issue is that like you know of course usually when you go to these things um people who ask questions are very laudatory they don't criticize you know it's like yeah. seen as kind of sacrilege like you're not supposed to do that but i think that's the point right like older angela davis back in the 70s wouldn't have been afraid to ask those kinds of questions of people no. with power so she yelled it before they got done doing their little intro talk <laughs> yeah so i'm just you know continuing her tradition from the past right. <laughs> but we'll see well, but I if i ever have the opportunity i will definitely ask her about this and um i'm sure she's I mean, I don't know. It's possible that people have never asked her. They might have written about it and criticized her, but I'm not sure if they've actually, if anyone has ever asked her personally, like on the record. I mean, when somebody like when you're somebody like that, it's possible to avoid like a criticism like that and just be completely oblivious to it. Like uh, as far as that, that people are, you know, putting that out there is something that is, and she's not on Twitter. So like that's another aspect too. It's like very possible that she's, she didn't recognize the kind of pushback that she got or didn't have to really confront it in any uh, personal way. And, and so, she's surrounded by people who would be okay with it. Like, I don't think that she's surrounded by people who would kind of take her to task by that necessarily. She's involved. She's still in, you know, she's just, she's like making speeches and doing academic stuff. But I think it, as you sort of hinted at earlier, it's still a sort of insulated existence if you will i mean i I don't that sounds bad but like insulated in the sense that it's not quite the same engagement that she had when she was younger which i understand i mean this is what happens right um you don't need to be in the trenches your whole life necessarily but i do wonder if that ice that sort of insulation i should say kind of keeps her from being as critical even of her own thoughts because she's not openly criticized in those environments because those people are just happy to have her you know what i mean Mm-hmm. Those people want her to be there and want to have a welcoming space. And I don't think you want to bite the hand that feeds you. You don't want to alienate your guests. You don't want to like alienate someone like her, um, right. which I understand. So I think that also kind of, I think, but I think that's what I mean when I was saying earlier, like, I think that also explains her transition because I don't think mm-hmm. anyone was willing to call her, like call her, call her on the carpet for some of the stuff, All right. you know? I don't know. One of the questions that I, I find myself leaving with is just is do revolutionaries get to retire? It, or is 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 that an option? Is that is that a fair like can, can you be like, oh, I, I spent 40 years in the struggle. Now I'm going to secure my personal security. If that means signing up for neoliberal stuff so I can get a paycheck. And that's that. Like, is, is that is that something that's reasonable or is it? Nope, you got to die revolutionary. And, and that's just the way it is. The boys might say that she pulled the Douglas. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> on that note, we got to wrap things up. Uh, thank you so much, Richard, for being here as always. Um, thank you to all of our listeners and patron appreciators, patrons on Patreon, and anyone who shares, likes, comments, whatever. Don't forget, by the way, I, y'all have got to leave comments and ratings on iTunes. We have like no, we have like a couple, but we need more because the issue is I know I have, I know we have a lot of listeners, like I know, cause I see the numbers, but I don't see the ratings. So please, if you listen and like us, leave us a rating because it helps other people find out about the podcast and, you know, like get involved in some way with whatever we're doing. So 
please do that if you haven't done so already. It's very easy. Just go and log into iTunes and follow the instructions to write a review or leave a star rating, um, hopefully five stars because you like us. And then, um, yeah, but that's that's all. Thank you, everyone. Um, and yeah, that's it. Thanks. Thank you, Wendy, as always. And good luck, everyone. And thank you for listening to the Left Pocket Project podcast. Once again, don't forget to find us on social media, and that's always at Left POC, L-E-F-T-P-O-C. To give us a rating and review on iTunes, and to be sure to check out our Patreon page, where you can make a donation and peruse all of our free content. Thanks again, and have a good one.